0: Morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Hey, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. We're continuing on in our series in the book of Romans. I should say the letter of Romans. Remember, it's a letter, a very long letter, but nevertheless a letter. Hey, uh, how many of you uh, at some point in uh, Uh, in your life you had let's see if you had an experience like this one you were a teenager and you were uh hanging out at some you know uh public function of some kind maybe a school function and and your parents were there and uh your parents started doing some weird things or some embarrassing things or something that just made you blush and and the people were like, "Hey, isn't that your mom and isn't that your dad?" And and you just looked at them and you're like, "Uh-uh. I don't know who those people are." Anybody ever did that before? Yes, we got a few people in the back. All right, just a few of us, all right? Well, I had many, many of it, uh, many a experience like that with my folks. My folks would routinely, particularly my father would routinely embarrass me and I'd I'd be like, "Oh my goodness, I do not know that person." I wanted to disassociate. I wanted to. I didn't want anyone to know that that was my dad, because I was so embarrassed. Well, today, folks, we're going to read a similar kind of theme in the book of Romans. We're going to read about a theme of a group of people who look upon someone and say, "I don't even know who that is. I uh, man, I just, I don't know." who that person is but I'm, I'm over here and I'm not even affiliated not even associated with that one over there. only the difference is it's not a teenager disassociating from his mom or dad. it's going to be all of humanity looking at God and saying, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that I don't know who that person is over there." It's going to be all of humanity in the book of Romans 1, 18-23, looking at God and saying, "I, I have no association with Him. I have no affiliation with that one. I don't even know that He exists. That's what we're going to read in Romans 1 today. We've come to a part in the book of Romans where Paul is going to be uh, opening up an entire section of his letter to address the fact that men and women, indeed all of humanity, are without excuse because God is plain, plainly seen to them. The title of this message, in fact, we're going to start a little series here from Romans 118 to about three early parts of chapter 3. And the title of the series is going to be Without Excuse. Part 1 is today. And that part 1 talks about how God is plain to see. And so all of humanity who denies God, who denies His existence, who disassociates from Him, they are without excuse. Paul is going to argue. Without excuse, part one, God is plain to see. The whole point of this series and quite indeed the whole point of this section in the, gospel, in the book of Romans from Romans 1.18 to the middle part of chapter 3 is this. F.F. F. Bruce actually sums it up very nicely. He says this, Paul's aim is to show that, that the whole of humanity is morally bankrupt. Unable to claim a favorable verdict at the judgment bar of God, desperately in need of His mercy and His pardon. You can't say it much better than that. This epitomizes uh, the next uh, two chapters in the book of Romans. And so let's read the first part of this series. We're in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18 and going to 23. It says this, Romans 1, 18-23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they, men, are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals And creeping things. Let's briefly pray and ask God to to bless this time. Father, open our eyes. Open our hearts. For we know how quickly and easily our hearts and our eyes and our minds can be led astray. By futile and by dark thinking. So, Lord, open our eyes and hearts and minds. Enlighten us. May Your Spirit guide this time of study and may it resonate with our souls as we go outside these walls later today and minister to a hurting and dying world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 18 again. In particular, says that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this might be that should be a very very familiar beginning uh, to this verse in verse 18 because you saw the same beginning uh, to the verse in in verse 17. Look earlier. It says for in it in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so we see here a clear pattern of how Paul is writing. Previously, and last week, and the weeks before, we covered verse 17. And in it, we established that in the Gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is being revealed. That is to say, God's divine saving activity is going out. And men and women who put their faith in Christ are receiving the righteousness of God in them. So that when God looks upon a man or a woman, He doesn't see their sin any longer. Instead, He sees Christ in them because He put His sins on His Son at the cross. And so the righteousness of God is being revealed through Christ according to verse 17. But just as quickly as... Paul makes that statement. He goes on in verse eighteen to talk about something quite different than that, and that is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is also being revealed from heaven, and this idea of revealing or disclosing—we um, we have, we have good reason here to, to, to believe that this is an action. That this this wrath, this revealing of wrath, is an action of God. It's an activity of God. He's at work. Not only revealing righteousness in verse 17 and beckoning people to come to faith in Christ, but now he's revealing wrath as an action. And Paul says this wrathful action of God is being ordered by God from heaven. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, we're obviously tempted to ask right off the bat, what is this wrath? What is it? And you know, we think of that word wrath, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we think of that word wrath, and, and we we kind of we kind of cringe at it a little bit. You know, dictionary definitions are things like you know, fierce anger, uh, resentful indignation, vengeance, punishment. And when we think of wrath, I, I think I think I'm in, on safe grounds to say that in our Western English way of thinking. Wrath is something that includes a sinful reaction, right? Doesn't that kind of seem like a normal way that we look at wrath? We think of wrath as something that's kind of like violent in reaction. Well, the scriptures don't speak of God's wrath in that way. In fact, the scriptures speak of God's wrath not as a sinful or violent reaction. Instead, it's the natural, righteous reaction of God who is holy and set apart. And when he sees sin, or when he sees evil, it is his natural reaction to go out and to say, stop. To go out and to say, this must be put to rights. And so God in no way is being unjust or sinful in His wrath. Instead, it is the righteous response of a holy God. So we need to be careful with that word. Not to uh, impute into that word the idea of sin or um, unjust violence. That's not at all what's happening here. Instead, this is the righteous response of God who is holy and set apart to sin. Now what is this wrath though? What is it? What does it look like? Uh, Today, we're really not going to define that in full. Um, we we uh, we're, we're gonna. I want to look at it just very briefly, but we are gonna come to it more fully in the next uh, next couple of messages. Today's purpose of the message is not really to define the wrath; it's actually to substantiate why it's happening. But just as a, a primer, just as a as a taste of what this wrath is. When we think of the word wrath, as I stated earlier, when we think of, uh, we might even think of the plagues from Egypt, right? The plagues of the Exodus, or we might look uh, forward into the future and see the uh, what's happening in the Book of Revelation, which is indeed an expression of God's wrath. And while it is true to say that the plagues and what's coming are expressions of God's wrath, the wrath in Romans one are not like those. In fact, the wrath of Romans 1 is considerably different than the plagues and then what is coming in the last days. The wrath in Romans 1 is a this worldly wrath. And what I mean by that is, it is happening right now, whether or not we are choosing to see it. It is happening right now, Paul's going to say. It is something that is occurring in the here and now. What God is doing in the here and now. Or to put it more accurately in Paul's words, what God is not doing in the here and now. Because the expression of God's wrath in Romans 1 is largely God's inactivity in the lives of ungodly and unrighteous people. Rather than showing them endless patience and endless protection, Upon the ungodly and unrighteous ones, there comes a point when God simply lets people experience the full ramifications of their thoughts and their actions. And we see this by three statements that we'll soon see in the next message. I want to bring up these statements here. In Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, notice the emphasis on God's inaction. He's saying, fine, have it your way. Notice what it says here. Romans 1.24, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Romans 1.26, God gave them up to vile passions. And Romans 1.28, God gave them over to a debased mind. This is not so much God's activity in their lives, as much as it is God pulling back His patience and His protection upon those who reject Him and ignore Him. God pulling back His patience and His protection and Him saying, fine, have it your way. Have it your way. This is an aspect of the expression of God's wrath in Romans 1. God pulling back His patience and His protection upon ungodly and unrighteous people. And God saying, have it your Way. See where those thoughts lead. See where those actions lead. See what happens when you live your life apart from me. That's a primer. It's not our purpose today. We'll substantiate that more in, in the forthcoming messages. But for our immediate purposes today, Paul's not so much interested in explaining God's wrath in these verses. He'll do that soon enough. But instead, right now, in our verses today, Paul is interested in saying why this is happening. Why is God's wrath coming? Why is it here? Why is it now? Why is it upon this earth in the here and now? And Paul gives us this answer plainly at the end of verse 18. Notice what he says again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says that the reason God is removing His protection upon, ungodly, uh, protection upon ungodly people is because such people are suppressing, they're holding down the plain truth of God's existence. Let's continue on in verse 19 here. It says, "...because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them." For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead or or deity, so that that they are without excuse. Now, uh, this kind of language, uh, for those of you who have studied uh, Christian apologetics, uh, you should be resonating with Paul's language here. Um, We we are seeing here a, a defense, if you will, from Paul, of the the existence of God. Uh, Paul is appealing to what is called uh, the, the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Now, that's a big word, cosmological. It basically means all things pertaining to the cosmos or the universe. The cosmological argument. Paul says, look around and you should be able to see with the plain eye that God exists. Look at all of this. Go outside and look at the hills. Look at the skies. Look at the birds of the air. Paul says, Isn't it, is it not plain to see that God exists? What else could explain the vastness? What else could explain the detail of this universe? Now, the, the, you know, the cosmological argument has, has, has its merits. It's been convincing for a long period of time for a number of people, but others... Others uh, uh, over time have come to criticize the cosmological argument, have come to de-emphasize it, uh, uh, really to their to their peril. But uh, Zane Hodges responds to those who refuse to acknowledge the merits of the cosmological argument, and he says something very profound here. He says this: He says, despite many centuries in which the intellectual elite of Western civilization have played down this simple form of argumentation, it remains as valid as ever. The view that the cosmos as we know it could have developed without the activity of a creating agent is in the final analysis an absurdity. It defies all rationality and common sense. The greater the complexity of a system, the more emphatically that system testifies to a designer, only with regard—notice this—only with regard to the cosmos, the most complex system of all, is this self-evident truth denied. That's a powerful statement. Hodges is making the argument. He's saying, he's saying, "Do you have a watch? You know, look at your watch. Does not the watch tell you?" It? Intrinsically, isn't it not not self-evident that when you see a watch, you think, well, someone, of course, made that? As simple as it is, a watch. As simple as as an item that we put on our wrist, everybody's got a watch. And everyone knows that someone made that watch. And Hodges goes on to say, but isn't it interesting that the greater the complexity, the greater the complexity of whatever it is that's been made, all of a sudden, we start thinking to ourselves in Western civilization, well, well, now that it's more complex, surely that means it wasn't made. Really? Only with regard to the cosmos, the most complex system of all, is this self-evident truth denied. Truer words are hard to find. Yet note carefully what, he said, what Paul says in verse 19. Paul says in verse 19, What may be known of God is manifest in them, mankind. For God has shown it to them. We cannot underscore the significance of this statement. I've been talking about it a lot actually in our our melting pot Bible studies. We've been studying... um, world philosophies and, and, and comparing them with Christian uh, perspective and thinking and, 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 and the Scriptures. And one thing that we've, we've established in Romans as we've gone through this text in our group and as we see plainly here, God is giving to all of humanity the knowledge of Himself. God has given all of humanity the knowledge of Himself. For God has shown it to them. In reality, if I, were to, if I were to draw out an implication of this, I would go so far as to say that Paul is suggesting there are no true atheists. There are no true atheists. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know atheists, Neil. Maybe I I was an atheist. Maybe I still struggle, even in my own heart, uh, uh, about the existence of God. Come on, you can't possibly infer from Paul's words the conclusion that there are no true atheists. That can't possibly be what Paul's saying. Really? I'm going for a very plain and straightforward interpretation of Paul's statement here. And it seems to me that he says, "...what may be known about God is manifest, declared, shown in them." And the word in there, N in Greek, is very, very strategic because he doesn't use that same word later on when he says, "...for God has shown it to them." In fact, I think Paul's making a very clear argument here. He's saying... Surely, the knowledge of God is in them. Why is it in them? Because God has put it in them. He has shown it to them. He has given it to them. He has placed it in their heart. He has made it readily apparent in human beings. Paul is not merely suggesting that we can know that God exists by looking out. He is suggesting that we can know that God exists by looking in. He says plainly that every human being has innate, inward knowledge of the existence of God. The New American Standard gets closer to the heart of Paul's words when it says, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. God has put the knowledge of Himself in every human heart. He has done this. It is His activity. An activity given to every human being. No one is exempted from this gift of knowledge. The truth of Romans one nineteen is profound. And I believe it it carries with it the implication that there are no true atheists. There are only people who what? Verse 18, suppress the truth. Which flows perfectly in Paul's argument. His entire argument here is that the wrath of God is being expressed upon people who suppress the truth. How can they suppress the truth if they haven't been given the truth? Paul says they're suppressing their knowledge of God. They're suppressing it. They're holding it down. They're holding down what they know to be self-evident, what they know in their hearts. They're holding it down. And I think the truth of uh, of Romans is is truly... Helpful for our evangelistic purposes, um, but we must be careful how this truth is used, um, because there are there are many professing atheists in the world, many, and I, and I use the word professing atheists. Professing atheists, they claim to be atheists, and the point of Romans one nineteen is not for us to mock them and to say, oh. Uh, sure, you think you're an atheist. I'm sure you do, but actually, no one is an atheist because everyone, including you, uh, has been given the innate, inherent knowledge that God exists. No. That's not Paul's point. He's not encouraging us, based on Romans 1.19, to pat them on the back and say, Sure, you're an atheist. That would, that would belittle them. That would mock them. That, would, that, would be not, that wouldn't be helpful in the least. Instead, we're to use this truth strategically. If it is true, if it is true that God has put in all people the knowledge of himself, and I believe it's true based on Romans 1:19. If that is true, then if a person comes to profess atheism, that should tell us something. That should tell us that something has happened in their life, particularly in their heart that has caused them to question the existence of God. I've never, met, I've never met a professing atheist who says, I was always an atheist. I've never met one. You can perhaps uh, introduce me to one. Uh, I've never known someone who has said, yes, I'm an atheist, and I always was an atheist. Even when I was three years old, I was an atheist. I've never met that person. Maybe you have. I doubt it, though. Based on Romans one nineteen, no. What happens? Every single person, when they're born, knowledge of God, they walk through life, and something happens. Five, eight years old, fifteen, college usually, something happens where they go, no, this, no, that can't be right, no. It, no, that, that's self-evident truth. That, that no, I'm gonna no, I'm gonna push that away, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go off in another direction. I've heard another philosophy. I've heard another another perspective, another religious answer, another scientific answer, another humanistic answer, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go in this direction for a while and suppress what I knew to be true when I was well, as long as I can remember. I contend that we can use the truth of Romans 1.19 very strategically. If God has put in all people the knowledge of Himself, then when someone professes atheism, you can know with great confidence that that person has had a crisis in their heart that has caused them to deny the existence of God. They had a crisis moment, a time in their life, educationally, seeing evil, asking why. And that crisis was so great that it caused them to deny, to suppress self-evident truth. And so if we we're to use Romans 1.19 in a strategic way, we might ask questions like, at what point did you become an atheist? Great question. You're getting to the heart of the matter. When did you make the turn? Because they all made that turn. At what point did you become an atheist? What factors contributed to your questioning of the existence of God? What was it? Friends, questions like these take a professing atheist who is generally very hardened and frustrated and at times angry at the idea of God and it begins to soften their heart. They begin to remember what has happened in their life. What has caused them to come to this point. And I would say that that getting a professing atheist to look inward is very constructive. For it brings them to the place where they first began to suppress the truth. Their heart is hard now, but it wasn't always that way. And when we listen to their story, when we listen to their pain, their frustration, and their hurt, which is real, when we listen to those things that have contributed to their rejection of God, we are beginning to work in cooperation with the Spirit of God to ease that suppression. As they express and as they release the tension and hostility they feel toward God, it often softens their heart toward being reintroduced for the first time. Again for the first time to the God that they always knew existed. Now, witnessing to a, a professing atheist has incredible challenges with it, and the purpose of my message today is not to, not to give you a, a foolproof plan here, um, but to give you some things to think about. I argue, based on Romans 1.19, you want to witness to an atheist, start with their heart. Start with their heart. Because that is the place they first began to suppress the truth. Moving on. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly, clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. God's existence, even aspects of His nature, are clearly seen. Just by looking at the cosmos, we can clearly see God's power and His deity at work. The word Godhead there, just substitute the word deity or divine nature. We can clearly see just by looking out that God is a powerful God and that He is divine. That He is God. That there is a God. That's what the cosmological argument says. And this is what Paul is saying pointing to. He's speaking of the general revelation of God to all human beings. As we look out and see that only a powerful and mighty God could have made this world, and as we look in and find an innate knowledge of the existence of God, Paul says such plain and obvious knowledge is sufficient. It is sufficient to demonstrate that if a person ignores or mocks or denies such truth, that person is without excuse without excuse. And thus all people are without excuse. Because all people have this knowledge. All people are without excuse. No one can say on the last day, I didn't know you existed. God, I didn't even know you existed. No one no one has that excuse. I re- uh, Let's bring up a picture of Richard Dawkins here. I'm sure many of you know who this person is. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a world-renowned evolutionary biologist, um, very well-respected in the scientific community, and uh, very hostile towards Christianity. And uh, I'm making the point here in in Romans 1, 19 and 20, that no one can say on the last day, I never knew you existed. And yet Richard Dawkins uh, argues, makes statements such as these in, in, in his defense. In response to, what if you met God one day when you died, Richard, even though you don't believe in Him? He said this, Bertrand Russell had that point put to him, and he said something like, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? This was Richard Dawkins' response to the question, what if you're wrong? And what if you met God upon death? Dawkins says, in the spirit of Bertrand Russell, I would say, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? Paul says, that's not a legitimate excuse. Paul says, that is an example of suppressing the truth. What about uh, a fun character you all know and love? uh, Bill Mayer. Uh, Bill Mayer, uh, very antagonistic, very hostile toward Christianity. He made this statement. He said, we are a nation that is unenlightened because of religion. I think that religion stops people from thinking. I think religion is a neurological disorder. Now, you, you know, you're like, why, am I, why are you bringing these up, Neil? Because I want to show you examples of excuses that people make for suppressing the truth of God. Richard Dawkins says, God is concealing Himself. I would ask him, why did you, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? Mayer says, hey, you know, those of you who believe in God, who believe in religion, you have a problem in your brain. Uh, The Scriptures have no sympathy for these kinds of statements. For God has put in all people the knowledge of Himself. He has made His power obvious by the things that are made. The vastness, the detail of this universe. And to respond to these things with statements like these are the height of human arrogance and suppression. Now, at the same time, we must remember that men like these, uh, their arrogance, I would argue, is merely a mask over a life of tremendous hurt and pain that has caused them to vehemently suppress what they know to be true. I contend that both Dawkins and Mayer both know God exists. I believe that based on Romans 1.19. These men know that God exists. But something has happened to them that has caused them to vehemently and violently react to that self-evident truth. And so as we see these guys on TV and as we... We cringe at their statements and we, uh, you know, we have emotions of uh, even uh, hating what they say and what they stand for. We should remember that these men are hurting. I believe that. These men are broken. Something has happened to them that has caused them to suppress what they know to be true. And so we should pray for them. And we should pray for any atheist or professing atheist or or person who is that angry and hostile and antagonistic toward even the idea that God exists. Let's move on. Verse 21, "...because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, in their foolish hearts, were darkened. Notice the phrase, although they knew God, reinforcing Paul's main point here. Reinforcing Paul's main point that everyone, every human being has an innate knowledge of God. They have only, if they've come to deny it, they've only suppressed that knowledge. And with that suppression comes all sorts of worldly philosophies and explanations for how the universe came to exist. They go to great lengths. <laughs> They go to great lengths to explain the cosmos in any terms except the notion that an almighty God has created it. And in so doing, they refuse to glorify him as God. They refuse to pay homage to him, give thanks to him for creating them and all that is good. You know, I think of I think of two people in an argument. Have you ever been in this situation where you're in an argument with someone and you don't leave the argument well and you kind of you go your separate ways? And you come back together in a social situation and you're in a group setting and you can tell that the person who you've been arguing with won't even acknowledge you. They'll be talking to everybody. Oh, hey, how you doing? How's it going? How was your weekend? And you're standing right here and you're like, hello, are you going to even acknowledge me? Have you ever been in that spot? I know I have many a times. Okay? I, uh, I, I offended somebody and, 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 and they're just, they don't even want to acknowledge me. They don't even want to recognize that I'm in the room. They don't even want to make eye contact with me. It would be too much even to make eye contact or to acknowledge that I am there because we had a conflict. Of course, it makes everyone in the group feel painfully uh, uncomfortable. Everyone knows it's painfully obvious what's happening. The same is true of people who refuse to acknowledge the existence of God. They'll believe anything. They'll divert their attention in any way possible so as not to make eye contact. So as not to even acknowledge the possibility that God is in the room. They'll believe anything to avoid what is obvious to their heart. And thus, uh, Richard Dawkins, the guy at at the top of that screen that I showed you earlier, remember the man who said, uh, sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? Well, when pressed for an answer on the origins of the cosmos, when pressed for an answer, Richard, well, what then, what then did cause all of this universe to exist? When pressed for an answer, Dawkins made the uh, concession that, well, it's quite possible that aliens from another planet Came to our galaxy and seeded life on planet Earth and all that exists to create what we have today. World renowned evolutionary biologist concedes that it's more likely that aliens from another galaxy came and created what we see today rather than look up and say, but of course it was from God. They'll go to great lengths, great lengths. When, uh, five years ago, Norm Geisler, the great Christian apologist, wrote, wrote a book entitled i don 't have enough Faith to be an atheist." It was this kind of nonsense that Geisler was referring to you got to have more faith to believe in this alien idea than to believe that God exists. although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says, when you suppress the truth long enough, long enough, your heart and your mind will continue to grow dark. Paul says their thought processes, people's abilities to think critically and rationally and objectively and to know right from wrong, all these things will become futile and will become worthless Tom Wright comments on uh, this verse and he says something simple and yet so profound. He says, one of the tragedies of rebellious humankind is the sheer waste of God-given intellectual powers. Think about the the clever criminal working out cunning, detailed plans to commit the crime and escape undetected. Or the clever dictator thinking how to crush opposition and to stay in power. Fancy using your God-given thinking power for purposes like that. Tom Wright says what? What? What a waste. What a waste of your God-given ability that you would work out evil and cunning plans to make a buck or to steal something or to retain power. Fancy using your minds, your God-given Intellectual abilities for purposes like that. Those who suppress the truth of God, their heart and their mind is regressing into an abyss. And yet, as, it, as the deeper it goes, ironically, the more wise they, they deem themselves to be. Finally, verse 22 and 23. Professing to be wise. Verse 22: Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Such people like Dawkins and Bill Maher uh, and, and many in, uh, who follow their suit, uh, man, they profess to be wise. They profess to have a corner on the market of knowledge and wisdom, uh, and their arrogance is uh, undeniable. And yet, they are fools, Paul says. And like a fool, they will follow in the footsteps of many people before them, their idolatrous ancestors, and they like those before them, will come to revere anything but God as God. They will come to revere anything. They will come to worship anything. Come to devote their minds and their hearts to anything or anyone but God. Whether it's a golden calf in the Exodus, or a wooden idol, or aliens from another galaxy they will do anything they can to avoid giving the glory and the honor and the credit to God a god they know exists and notice notice the regression here in verse 23 they substituted they exchanged the glory that they should have given God and instead they began to give it to images made like men and birds and animals, and even reptiles. Paul is using this this regression here. He's saying it gets worse and worse and worse. Their thoughts get more futile and more dark. As deep as their suppression goes. How do we learn from this... uh, from this study this morning. What are some ways in which we can apply the truths that we've learned? One, and I want to make this, uh, all three of these points are really, really uh, very, very helpful for us today as we approach those who do not know God. Number one, much of what can be known about God is self-evident. Notice I don't say all. I don't say all because Paul does not say all. He says much, so much of what can be known about God is self-evident. Not enough to save a person unto eternal life. No, that requires faith in Christ. But when someone recognizes that God exists, we trust as a people that God would be gracious enough to send them additional revelation of Him. And so we we need to stand firm on on Romans 1 and say that much of what we can know about God is self-evident too. God has ensured that every human being begins life with a clear awareness of His existence. Never waver from this point. Too often Christians concede this. They suppose that that uh, people are not born with this self-evident truth. No, they are. They are. I've never met an atheist who always was an atheist. Show me who that person is. I would like to know who they are. I don't believe they exist. Three, but those who suppress their God-given awareness of Him will find their hearts and minds deteriorating into increasingly futile and dark thought processes and practices. Paul says it gets worse and worse and worse the deeper you suppress, the deeper you dig in and bury the truth of God. And that goes for Christian or unbeliever. Let us not suppose, and Paul is sure to make this point, let us not suppose we are strictly speaking of the atheist. When a Christian suppresses God's truth, they find themselves without the Spirit's guidance. And finding themselves in, in, regressing into increasingly futile and dark ways of thinking. Christian and non, suppress the truth. You will end up like this. So let us rise up. Let us not live in denial. Let us look up and say that God exists, that we're going to learn more about Him, and we're not going to be so foolish as to bury His truth and with it bury our thought processes and our hearts. Let's rise up and live in the power and the wisdom and the knowledge of the Spirit of God who shows us all His truth. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, our hearts go out as a people to those who suppress Your truth. Uh, Lord, we too have suppressed Your truth at times in our lives and we've reaped consequences for it. But God, especially we know that Deep and dark consequences await those who deny You. Who reject Your existence. And our hearts go out to them, Lord. We recognize, based on Your Word, that they are merely suppressing what they know to be true. So, Lord, help us, as You do, deal with the heart. Help us deal with people's hearts. Help us love them. Show sensitivity. Try to understand why it is that they have veered off in the path that they have. Lord, help us to work in cooperation with Your Spirit to open up hearts again to Your truth. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.